Welcome to Present Value. I'm your host, Elizabeth Potts. Dr. Harry Cho has centered his work around improving the U.S. health system through reduction in unnecessary tests and greater transparency for patients. To give you some more context around today's guest in the episode, I'm delighted to be here with the president of the Healthcare Club, Amanda Levine. Great. Thank you, Elizabeth. So to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Harry Cho is the Chief Value Officer at NYC Health and a Clinical Associate Professor at the NYU School of Medicine. He received his Bachelor's of Science from Cornell's College of Human Ecology and completed his residency at Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Cho's work with NYC Health focuses on the intersection of overuse and patient safety, and he aims to eliminate unnecessary testing and treatment that causes physical and financial harm for patients. He has received over 50 awards and recognition in value, safety, and education. To name a few, he was recognized in three under 40 list top 25 emerging leaders by Modern Healthcare, 40 under 40 leaders in health by National Minority Quality Forum, and 50 leaders in healthcare under 40 from Becker's Hospital Review. In today's episode, Dr. Cho sits down with Elizabeth Potts to discuss his quality improvement work with the New York Hospital System, his education of the next generation of physicians, and the lessons learned from the COVID pandemic. Dr. Cho, thank you so much for joining us today on Present Value. Thank you for having me. So we have a lot of stuff to get to today, but I really want to start with more of a broader view. So what really brought you to healthcare and specifically to inpatient healthcare? Because I understand that you actually started your training as a primary care physician. I did. Uh, I was at the Yale New Haven Hospital. It was the primary care program there. And I think originally I wanted to, I think this is just kind of how interesting how the how your life goes from one direction to the next. Um, I think I originally wanted to do ambulatory care and I think I wanted to do some international medicine. And then I think one thing led to another. I think residency is just a very interesting time where you're learning so much and you're really understanding a lot about yourself. But for me, I think it's it sort of circles around that hedgehog concept of Where's your passion or what do you love doing? What are you good at where you feel like you're better than everyone else and where you feel like your strengths are? And then third part is where's the opportunity? And I think when I thought about it, it sort of fit, um, at least in inpatient side in hospital medicine. I really love the hustle and bustle of being on the inpatient side where you're trying to take care of someone, a patient who is very sick at the moment and coordinating different kind of care with different disciplines, nurses, social workers, care managers with other physicians and consultants and the back and forth and just trying to make that happen in a very quick and real time sort of a process. So I love that. And then, you know, just having a team around you with the teaching and it's just one new thing after another every day. So it was very exciting for me. So I really love that part. And then I it just felt like I was, I was a little bit better at it. I think it's just the excitement of just being there. I just, just kind of really kept me going. And I just felt like I really worked well within teams and just being a part of that process. And, you know, thirdly, I think in terms of the opportunity itself, you know, hospital medicine right now is a bit over 20 years old. Uh, this is, you know, Bob Walker is sort of our father of hospital medicine and he sort of coined that term for hospitalist. And it's been growing ever since then. It's never stopped. I think people have been skeptical at times whenever you feel like this sort of creeps in. But it's been very helpful for the inpatient side 
it's just been growing in terms of opportunities, in terms of and its applications for education, for quality improvement and safety, and in terms of research also. So I think it all fit. That's a great story, a great background. So you you had mentioned quality and safety. Really, the, the only exposure that many of our listeners get to the healthcare system is as a patient. For those that may not be familiar with this practice, could you actually define what quality and safety means to the healthcare industry? Sure. So for me, I look at it in terms of just one rubric, which I think is that most people can, in academia can relate to, which is research. So I think there's just wonderful researchers in the, in the field of healthcare, I mean, various fields. And I think, you know, when researchers get together and they come up with these sort of findings of what makes care better in certain settings, then a group comes together, looks at that research that's been published and then scrutinizes it and discusses it within a panel. And when you come up with these consensus clinical guidelines come to play, and those are great. I follow them. SHM has them. Societies from Cardiology has them. You know, aspirin right after a heart attack within a certain time frame for a certain population helps with mortality and things along those lines. And so those are sort of the recommendations. But at the same time, I know that there's research, solid research, which says you have guidelines and research, and then it takes about 17 years for practice for our behavior to change so that that becomes the norm. And so 17 years is a long time. And I think we've all realized that healthcare is just so complex and nuanced that no matter how smart and how well-meaning we are within these hospital and healthcare settings, it's just hard to get there. And so quality improvement is a way to get there quicker and to try and look at the systems, systems issues and the setting and trying to sort of create these more efficient system changes to make that happen quicker. Right. Yeah. I I always joke that hospital and healthcare, it moves at slower than a snail's pace. It's honestly ridiculous. It's it's probably the one of the the most important industries here. I mean, it's it's really too important to stay the same. <laughs> That's very true. And you think about, you know, some things that we use still to this day, pagers. You know, that's, I don't understand that. I mean, I think those were around the eighties. I mean, we, you know, no one else uses them, but we do, you know, it's just, it's just how we operate. (laughs) Right, right. No, it's the same. And so how does this translate into what you do to hospitals? So what kind of changes have you been able to implement either from a personnel standpoint or from a process standpoint in hospitals? Sure. So maybe I could take one example. So a lot of my work revolves around reducing overuse. So unnecessary testing and treatment that is often harmful for our patients. And so one thing that we've been trying to tackle here is unnecessary testing and treatment at night that can often lead to patient harm and just disturb your sleep. And I think these are uh, a lot of our main patients are older adults who are much more vulnerable and they need that recovery time, especially when they are very sick within the hospitals to just get a little bit of rest, just to recuperate and get, let their bodies recover. We noticed some things, for example, these vital checks. I think in our electronic medical system, there's sort of standardized ways of putting in these checks for patients throughout their hospital stay. So you'll have this Q4 hours or every four hours, um, it'll be checked or every six hours or every eight hours and things along those lines. It's never really been ingrained where we look at from a patient's point of view of when they can actually sleep and when is it okay for them to go in. Now, obviously, if someone is very sick and you need to get the vital check, go in. But this is sort of computerized, automated. It's not very patient-friendly. 
So one of our initiatives here was to try and reduce those unnecessary things when patients are stable, particularly when they're waiting for final touches to make sure that their paperwork is done or they're waiting for a placement within a nursing home or something along those lines where they're just waiting. Um, And those are very opportune times to sort of reduce the vital checks. And so these type of things is sort of mapping this process out, understanding the drivers, which medications, which, what are the disturbances, how are vitals checked? Can we tweak it on the electronic medical system? Can we convince the providers to do those? And so we've made some headway in that. And I think that's, you know, those are small wins, but very effective. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a definitely a, a great point. So you've mentioned a lot about reducing the touch points that we have with patients, or I guess reducing use overuse. Why is that important? Why, why should we care? Is it better? I know I remember I read somewhere that the U.S. spends the most on our health care, but this doesn't necessarily translate into the best outcome. So can you talk a little bit about that, of why we care? Of course. Yeah. And I think I showed the same three slides over and over again. And I think whichever way you look, you nailed it. People sometimes look at the U.S. for the leadership in a lot of things, and it's just not the case. We have you think that U.S. we have the most resources and or, you know, in one of the most resource heavy sort of industrial nations and we have the best research and the best technology to sort of provide the best healthcare, along with the most trained specialists and all those things. And I think when you look at the curves of the data of how this accumulates and we have this and we're definitely providing it for our patients, the more consultants and everything else, all of this, that tends to go up and the cost goes up. But then you look at the outcome measures that I think uh, most people look at, mortality, infant mortality, you know, all those kind of things just don't go up the same. And they actually get worse in a lot of ways. So there's a fine point here of appropriate time, appropriate patient. And this is where that phrase came, where less is more in in a lot of cases. That's an interesting fine line. And I think a, a huge shift that a lot of people will have to take, especially in the healthcare industry. How would this benefit the patient experience? Because I know patient experience is is one of the things that a lot of hospitals are trying to focus on because it's one of the outcomes that they can actually control. So will reducing these unnecessary tests have an impact on that at all? I hope so. Um, (laughs) And again, we're always trying to catch up a little bit and it takes time for these things to sort of overlap. But I think patient engagement, patient activation, and just the experience overall is an important part. I think we're still in its infancy. We're making some progress of being able to talk with patients about appropriate testing. Just because you fell at home does not mean you need to get a head CT scan. And I think there's different drivers here in terms of the patients and then in terms of the clinicians of what makes this overuse happen. I think if you look at studies after studies, and it's both ways, patients tend to look at a test or treatment And they look at it and they think that it's much more beneficial than it actually is. So sometimes you'll get patients who come into a clinic, an ED or a hospital, and they want that test, they want that treatment. And it just doesn't have that evidence. It's not that helpful in a lot of cases. And same with clinicians. They'll look at a test, they'll order things, they'll uh, provide things with good intention. But again, the actual benefit is lower. And so our perceptions and our expectations are are very different from the actual benefit. So I think those are things to work through, but we need to have those conversations. So it's convincing the clinicians, convincing patients about what exactly the, the pros and cons of a lot of these tests and treatments are and becoming in line with this and sort of informed care. 
Yes. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great initiative that, that we need to start working on, <laughs> but getting more on the business side of things, hospitals can charge for these tests. So fewer tests would mean less revenue for hospitals. And we know that hospitals already run on extremely tight margins. How do you convince health system leadership that these are the right initiatives to pursue? Yeah. So I think there's a there's a couple things. One, I'm in a unique place where our president, uh, Mitch Katz, is very much in favor of reducing unnecessary testing and treatment. So I can only speak for myself. And I think where I focus on is doing the right thing for the patient, whether it's overuse and trying to reduce that or underuse. And then how do we get the appropriate and the right amount of testing to do the right thing for the patient? But I do think that it's not a hard sell for at least administrators. If you're cutting down on unnecessary testing and treatment, each one of those tests and treatments do have a, a cost, at least charge cost or a hospital list price attached to it. And it adds up if you can cut that down. I think we are still in our infancy in terms of overuse research. So if you, if you think about it, we're only looking at the initial test or the initial treatment. We're not looking at the bouncing treatment and the complications. So for example, that one vital check at night, that was unnecessary. At some instance, statistically, you're going to get something where someone's uncomfortable, anxious, or in pain, where it reflexively raises the blood pressure high. And when that happens, it's like a cascading event. So the nurse calls a doc overnight. The doc responds, say, oh, blood pressure's high. Let me give a medication. And then it's falsely lowers the blood pressure. And then now their blood pressure is low. And then they have to react to it and give more fluids. And so you can see the downstream testing and the harm that it causes for our patients. So those add up. We just don't know exactly what that is at what frequency. And so there's a larger opportunity there that we haven't explored into quite that detail. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to quantify, honestly, a lot of stuff with the healthcare system because you're working with so many different variables here. But getting into more of the, the cost side of things and more of the quantification of, of the issues here, there, there have been many exposés about surprise medical bills and their exorbitant costs. <laughs> one example I remember reading about, there was a, one hospital that charged a couple like thousands of dollars just to give their kid baby Motrin and, and, and then send them home after, you know, of course, hours of waiting in the ED. And it's basically just this constant theme of charging unreasonable prices for everyday items like baby Motrin. So it's evident that something definitely needs to change. Could any of these practices that you mentioned help with the healthcare billing system? <laughs> the biggest challenge of all? <laughs> Gosh, I hope so. I really do. I, I do think in the in the last few years, it's we've made some really good strides. We're not quite there yet, but we're taking the steps in the right direction. Hospital price transparency, at least in terms of like what the charge cost is. And then now we're sort of saying like, what is the cost that you're sending over to the insurance provider? And then we'll take some next next steps there. But it is it is absurd if you think about it. Myself, who is very well-versed in this, and this is sort of my area, I still can't have that great discussion with the patient about, I'm going to send you down for a head CT scan because I feel like I want to investigate this further and I can't tell them exactly how much it's going to cost. And that's frightening in a lot of ways. But I do think that right now, I think the one thing that is certain for me is maybe not the cost, but definitely what is consider overuse in terms of benefit and harm for the patient. And so I stick with that. If that can translate, that's great. If not, you know, I still feel like at least we're, we're, we're chipping away. 
Right. Yeah. It, and again, it's going to be a, a long-term effort. And so, so you had mentioned the um, hospital price transparency and just for a little more background, that rule went into effect. I mean, finally, after so many iterations this past January of 2021, it was basically just a rule to require hospitals to publish the prices that they have built in the system for the items in their system. So not necessarily the price that they bill their insurers or the price that the insurance companies pay the hospital, which are all, all negotiated. So do you think that this is a step in the right direction of getting more people involved or is it more a boots on the ground effort? So more of a the human personnel of training the doctors, because you had mentioned that you wouldn't be able to tell a patient <laughs> you know, what, what their prices are. Yeah. It's going to take a while. And even if we have the right prices, if we knew exactly for, for the patient that came in through the door, what's the type of insurance, what's the cost of this back and forth, even if he had that exact thing and I knew exactly how much that was going to cost on their itemized bill, and this is again where quality improvement and a lot of education will come into play, we have to be able to sort of have that concerted discussion where the clinician understands the benefits and harms from, from the classic physical harm sense and the physical benefit from it. And then having an understanding of what that cost is compared to something that's comparable. You know, keep in mind a blood test for a routine blood count may be much less than a CT scan of the head in the magnitude of maybe hundreds to a thousand or so. So how do you really have that cost effectiveness talk with a patient in an informing way so that they can understand this too? It takes a while. There are some rubrics that we can sort of start off with. I think, for example, when you are in the clinic, having that discussion about here's the medication, here's an alternative that you can do. Let me look up your pharmacy. This is how much the brand name will cost. This is how much the generic costs. I think they're equivalent. So I'm going to recommend this for you, but you tell me what you think. There's a lot of uh, simpler areas where this can be done, but we're trying to get to the complex part. <laughs> Yeah. And there's, there really is no right answer, at least now we're just going to have to figure out and see what works best. And this really brings me to the paradox of the U.S. medical system. We as patients are not the experts. We're supposed to just blindly trust our doctors with our lives, basically. But yet we're receiving these surprise bills for tens of thousands of dollars. And that put us in debt that actually it's starting to erode the trust and cause many people to avoid the health system altogether. And so although physicians and hospitalists aren't personally responsible for setting these prices, what can be done to keep and in some cases rebuild the clinician-patient relationship? This one's a tough one. They used to say that, I believe they still do, I hope they still do, where if you wanted to if you were in advertising, I guess, if you wanted to build that trust for a service or a product, you would put one of three professions and they sort of rotate a little bit, but it's, it's like a teacher, a nurse, or a doctor. And if you think about this, it's not a politician, it's not a, you know, it's not a police officer. Public doesn't perceive unanimously as a, as a, as a trusting sort of a service, you know, for good or bad. But I think this is starting to change now whenever we start to have these moments. I look at even, I believe it was a survey from PBS about, and I may not be quoting this well, but the basic gist is in terms of who would you trust regarding vaccine data, and whether it's helpful what, about these complications and everything else. And you had things listed in terms of your doctor, your family member, the influencer on social media, or 
uh, celebrity and he even had Dr. Fauci there and everything else. And then Democrats and Republicans. And I think right at the top was a personal physician. And I think that speaks volumes. We are, as physicians, we are taught to advocate for our one patient. You know, you're not having a a doctor visit with a group of people. It's just one-on-one. And the doctor is trained. You're there to advocate for your patient no matter what. You're not doing population health for a group of people. You're here to help your patient and you're going to do whatever you can to get them the right treatment at the best cost, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and I think that really works. You know, that one-on-one sitting, you're sitting there and that interaction where you're saying hello and you get to form that relationship and you get to know who they are and vice versa. And that time in person where they can be empathetic and, and have those exchanges really go a long way in building trust. And that's always been tried and true. And so I think those are very helpful. I think if patients have that trusting doctor or, or nurse or any kind of clinician that they really feel that trust in, those are going to go a long way in, in changing hearts and minds. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I've also been keeping an eye on those those profession trust surveys as well. And I think physicians have been kind of wavering. Mm-hmm. And so that was really, <laughs> it was really optimistic for me, at least to see. I was pretty excited to see that people would trust their doctors for at least the vaccine that's most most recently. So I kind of want to transition a little bit. This is this is a good segue into more your work with the future of, of doctors, the future doctors and your work with the NYU School of Medicine. Because you're in this really unique position where you're you're an administrator, you're also a hospitalist, but you also get to teach, inform, and mentor the next generation. So how do you teach and, and maybe also implement these high value mindsets, this reduction of overuse in students and young doctors at, at more so the individual level? It's a great question. So first of all, I love that part. I think it's just very rewarding. I think it's just wonderful to have such eager students and residents who are so hardworking and just brilliant. Just being able to work within teams with you to take care of patients, it just makes my days so much better. <laughs> And I don't know if I'm the best at it, to be honest with you, but I think what I enjoy when I'm on the wards is taking what I know best, which is on appropriate testing and treatment and trying to have that discussion in rounds. So the busy resident, an intern, or first to sort of see the patient very quickly and just to make sure the most serious things are sort of taken care of, that they're stabilized and they get the full history and everything else. And they go through the litany of tests. And as they're reporting, I ask some simple questions, things along those lines of, what about this test? Tell me the evidence behind it. What's, what is the benefit for the patient? But what's the harms? And I think that piece for me is a little bit different from the other attending who may have an expertise on something else. But for me, the appropriate testing part is always fun. And I think it's, it's sort of one of those things where I think for interns and residents, it really resonates with them because they really go out all out for these tests and treatments. If they feel like it's needed, they're going to call and, and call and call <laughs> to make sure that they that CT scan is done for the patient as quick as possible. And they're advocating for them. And it takes a lot being on hold, giving the runaround. Nope, it's not us. Call this person. And then, you know, it's just the hospital itself is a very busy place. So sometimes it's not the most friendly. <laughs> so they really go all out. And then when I come in and of course, it's much easier for me, but I give the appropriateness of it. And if it can sort of mitigate one thing that they also felt didn't feel like was necessary for the patient and from, from their end, it makes their lives a lot easier too. So I think it's that sort of connection, I think is very fun. It's also just nice to do this at bedside too. You know, uh, when I have a team with me and we decide not to check morning labs or something along those lines, which usually, you know, they do blood draw at 4 a.m. for all things. 
or a vital check at night, I always say, Hey, uh, how was your, you know, we go in and like, how, how did you sleep? Was it a little better? And we didn't do the blood draw this morning. We didn't check those vitals at night. Is that helpful for you? You know, those kind of things are very rewarding and meaningful. And I think it's always nice to sort of share that with the team. That's great to hear. I love still hearing people get into medicine for the patients because you are the patient advocate. Like I said before, we are putting our lives in your hands as patients. And so it's, it's great to hear that there's, there's a team of future doctors that are, that are the advocates and that are willing to, again, work through the city and all of the issues that is the hospital <laughs> to get to push <laughs> us up to the front of the line, to push the draws earlier or as quick as possible. And so that brings me to you know, what can be done on a more systemic level in hospitals or how do you try to train more from a group perspective? Because yes, we can have a whole bunch of new residents come in, but as new residents come in, they, they're still working with attendings. They're still working with existing staff and systems and processes that have been there in place since before they were born. So how do you try to implement that more widespread and integrate your new teachings? Yeah, these are good questions. I think What's been wonderful since in the last, I would say, a little less than 10 years or so is that the education system has changed systematically just to sort of start to have these conversations. So high value care is a part of undergraduate medical education, graduate medical education is sort of a requirement. So these curriculum are sort of popping up. Again, these are beginnings. Uh, these are starts of conversations about costs and appropriateness. And I think those are very helpful one more respect. The other part is if you go back another 10 or 20 years, this, this whole quality improvement and patient safety sort of movement and how that's becoming much more mainstream. And so that was more of a requirement, just a little bit before that. And so when you put this together, how do we create these programs where we can train our, our learners to actually make these, not on an individual basis with, with our patient, but from a bigger scale, how do we change the system for the better? I think these are really good questions. I think we started at least on a bigger scale. I still think that there's a lot more to go. These curriculums, I think, are great in terms of just starting a discussion, but we also need to really train them in that quality improvement background. You know, how do you look at it, not from a research angle, not from an individual, not from an education standpoint, but from system changes? How do you look at this? How do you know what the next step is in terms of getting the lowest hanging fruit? How do you work with staff to get uh, a nod? How do you change the EMR system? How do you look at data in a quality improvement perspective and not in a research way to get some data-driven methods? And so longitudinal programs tend to help identifying some champions, getting them together, a peer group, have a mentor for fact from faculty who knows how to do it well, follow it across for the year or two that they're there and really see it sort of pan out effectively. And I think whenever, you know, these type of uh, longitudinal programs are, are reviewed, I know there's, if I have this right, there's one from University of Pittsburgh where they looked at it and it's only a handful that become successful. So, you know, we want to, we want to push that a little bit better. We're still not quite there, but I think those can be a good start. And just having more faculty who are well-versed in this. Mm-hmm. As I talk with my colleagues who are, who are a bit older, whenever quality improvement and patient safety came into play in the realm of things in terms of our physician world, no one really had formal training in it. And same thing with high value care. No one really has that formal training where they become well-versed. There's no, there's, I don't think there's any fellowships or anything along those lines. And so these need to sort of develop. I mean, I want to stop and say thank you then for being there and, and being the, the trainer. 
and being the educator for everyone who already has been in the hospital system and just wants to learn. And then for our future generation of doctors and physicians, are there any specific programs or courses that you teach or seminars that, that you'd like to highlight? Sure. Uh, you know, there are there are some programs. So let me see here. There is the STARS program for uh, medical students. Uh, this is in partnership with ABM Foundation and the Choosing Wisely program. And so they're at least a few years in. Chris Moriarty's is a, is a great leader in that, uh, working with Daniel Wolfson. And so they sort of identify different institutions where there's med schools and then identify some champions with a mentor. They come together for an annual conference and they get some training there. And then they go back and they do a joint project. And I think that's fantastic. And I wish that continues. And there are High Value Practice Academic Alliance, which I'm a bit of an avid supporter of. Pam Johnson has done phenomenal things in terms of fostering these groups and creating these programs. And so there's wonderful things for trainees, for residents and fellows to participate in, where they can get some guidance from that sort of an angle and build some longitudinal programs. So I think those are in place. And those are only going to get bigger and better. I also, when we were at Sinai, we did the Student High Value Care Initiative, which was, I thought was a group program where we had every year it was it started as a club and then it was an elective, but we had a handful of about 25 students who would just join on. I would find some faculty, pair them up, and then we would just do some learning with their QI projects and give them a little bit of critique and go move forward. And I would say out of all the projects that came, I mean, those were I would say about 80% successful with some publication at the end or wow. definitely an abstract. And so, you know, those things I think are, are in pockets. We're just going to, we're going to get better at this. Yeah, that's impressive. And that's great that there's so many opportunities in place and, and you've been championing them. So kind of what I want to get to is the fact that you straddle so many roles as a hospitalist, an administrator, and a professor, and you're obviously very passionate about everything. You're a very passionate educator. You are an advocate for the patient. You're an advocate for your residents and you're an advocate for the hospital system as a whole. And you're very optimistic and that it can change. And so how do you balance these responsibilities from your clinical work with the drive to improve the whole entire healthcare system and the whole entire profession of medicine? It's a good question. I don't know if I do it well. <laughs> uh, let me just start off with that. And I think I'm only getting better. And I think always I look back, you know, five, 10 years and I look back and I just kind of close my eyes, shake my head and I said, oh, I wish I'd done that differently. And I think if you have those moments, you're, you're, I know that I'm at least being introspective and I'm trying to do better and I'm at a better place than I was before. So I'm glad I'm having those ways, just an awkward feeling. But I think, I think one, it makes it easier because if you are passionate about it, that makes everything easier. Uh, it makes coming home and sitting in front of a computer and writing the scientific paper, which to be honest with you, like none of it's super interesting. You know, you can't write embellished sentences or anything like that. It's very, very scientific. It's very factual. It makes that part much easier. It makes sitting in uh, meetings after meetings with clinician leads or administrators and and those kind of things where you're trying to convince and brainstorm and everything else. And, you know, those kind of meetings go by a lot quicker and makes that long-term win, which is really hard to rally around. And I think research can really understand this. You know, that paper comes two years, three years down the line, sometimes longer. And how do you really make that process very rewarding? And if you truly find that passion in whatever it is, it just makes things a lot easier. And so I love high-value care. I love the, the field of quality and safety. And so Whenever I go in the wards, I love talking about it. 
I love going home and reading about it. I love, eh, I don't say love, but I do makes writing easier. <laughs> and I think that sort of propagates itself and so on. I don't know if that answers your question, but that seems to work for me. No, definitely. <laughs> it's going to be hard to make research writing and technical writing um, very, very interesting to anyone. But that's a great life lesson for everyone. I mean, be, be passionate about what you do. If you love it, if you love to talk about it, then it, it makes it more tangible. Because like you said, bringing it back to what you had started off earlier in our discussion on it, it takes, what, 17 years, at least for anything to change. It's a big ship, the healthcare system. It's trillions of dollars of an industry. So changing systems that have been in place for years and years and years, you need something that you can look forward to on a daily basis. So it's a great life lesson for all of us. And so the final section I, I wanted to touch on is more tangible, is more <laughs> really close to us. The impact uh, the COVID pandemic has had on the healthcare system. We haven't been able to get into hospitals. We haven't been able to see our doctors, whether it's a primary care, whether it's an elective procedure, or whether it's an emergency. But telehealth has been something that's been around for a while. It's just been, again, taking a while to get off the ground. So do you think that the pandemic has, in a way, accelerated the adoption of telehealth? And do you think it's, it's for, for the better from a hospital standpoint? Mm, this is a good question. So you are absolutely right. It took what was already there and it really sort of sped it up during this entire process because it needed to. You know, I think a lot of us really start to understand what the heck Zoom was or as we have WebEx or, you know, what sort of telehealth actually means and that communication with the video and how to sort of connect it with our patient and HIPAA violations and, and just trying to make sure that everything sort of accommodated and just as an aside, I remember, you know, during the first surge, the one that I think that was very media focused in New York City, I remember our team going around from site to site trying to sort of leverage palliative care support for our hospitalized patients. And I think you, you remember this, if you can sort of track back, I think in the city alone, at some point, there were close to 800 deaths happening per day. And it was very rampant and we didn't have all these iPads within our facilities at the, you know, when we started at some point, a lot of hospitals didn't know what to do. And so they wanted to make sure that everyone was safe. So they just closed on the hospitals for visitors. And so you can imagine what one thing meant, you know, there were patients who were very sick, who were dying. And then there were, you know, I think at some point outside some of the hospitals, there were family members who were just trying to find someone who can relay a message over to clinicians. And I remember our, there were teams that were going around just to try and call out to the families to give updates. And it sometimes wasn't in doctors because they were just seeing one patient after another. And so this was a tough time. And I remember when we were looking at telehealth and just figuring out like, how do we make this work? Can we just take our cell phone and just get on FaceTime and have that short connection with our patient and call their family up and everything else? Or how do we make this happen? And just the logistics of bringing someone in to bring that tablet in, set up that phone call at the right time. What does that entail? And how do we find this person? All these things were, I think, were very difficult. And so I think this, is, this has been a challenge. But to get to sort of your point about whether this is better or not, I think we learned a lot of how to make this work. What was necessary in terms of some things, for example, HIPAA at the time, I think was something that was very debated. And yeah, real quick, HIPAA, the, the Health Insurance Portability Act. So the patient safety of not getting, giving out patient information, just a quick interjection. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Sometimes I'm stuck in my own world. And those kind of things that were really just sort of complex and it just, from a busy provider standpoint, we're just scratching our hands and we're like, why? Why can't we just get our FaceTime and just get on the call with our patients and our family? Exactly. And so we learned a lot there. And I think as things started to calm down, these televisits started to come to play and we learned some things. When it first started, the compliance rate for patient visits or patient televisits was just wonderful. You would have, you know, missed visits or no notice or whatever, and the clinics would be so they would just have everything sort of scheduled. And then, you know, um, patients wouldn't show up. There would be a no call and no show and everything else. And this, that would happen. That would be a sort of a very commonplace thing. And then next, you know, telehealth happens and that goes, that gets much better. Mm -hmm. So there's some, a lot of things we learned there. And then we also learned that people really, after a while, they want to see their doctor. They want to shake their hand. They want that stethoscope on their chest. They want them to write the script or what have you. And I think that sort of in-person human interaction with the physician, I think, goes a long way. So that physical diagnosis and that personal touch is a very important factor. So there are pros and cons to all this. And then, we know, we also have some questions about access. It is helpful. Sometimes for a patient, I know in the city, as, as small as you think Manhattan is, the complexities of a patient who lives in a borough in Queens, for them to get to the nearest bus stop, then get the interchange, then come over to close to the clinic and then walk over. And if they're debilitated and they have a walker or a cane or something along those lines, it's a huge endeavor. Oh, yeah. And so it helps with access in that respect. But then there's also sort of the digital equity piece where it's the literacy of, of all this. You know, um, I know my mom sometimes has a hard you know, when I say, can you get on Facebook? It's hard for her. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And so these are the nuances of this. So I think we're learning a lot. I think overall it has been very helpful, but we're still learning to sort of get better at this. Yeah. That's another one of the big challenges of getting the highest quality care to the people that need it the most. It, it's yeah. going to be the hardest really. <laughs> and so you, you had mentioned palliative care as a beneficiary of telehealth. Could you, one, define palliative care, just kind of give it a little more background? And then, two, are there any quality and safety lessons that we can learn about delivering palliative care in a post-pandemic world? Yeah. So palliative care, and I'm not a palliative care doctor, but it's something I just felt very passionate about and, and sort of saw the need there. It's, you know, from an inpatient setting is where they help with having patient and family-centered care for a patient who oftentimes is at the end of life. And I think we saw this with coronavirus and patients who were ventilated for prolonged periods of time that we did not anticipate and how to deliver the right care with the goals of care in mind about what's appropriate for the patient and the family and their values and their religious beliefs and what have you. And I think it's an interesting thing because during this time, also out of care in terms of staffing was at a national shortage. And so, you know, when we made this call through city and state for volunteers to come to New York. We'll do what we can to sort of credential you really quickly, set you up at a hotel, and we'll get you on the ground to help our healthcare providers who, who need the support. You know, one thing that we, we didn't have enough of was powder care providers. And so how do we leverage that from a telehealth perspective from across the country and sort of get them as consultants, put them on some kind of iPad screen or a tablet screen and communicate back and forth to help facilitate these conversations. It was so important there. I firmly believe that every doctor in the hospital should be able to have that skill set to be able to converse with the patient and their family, understand their goals, and provide that support emotionally um, in terms of just healthcare in, in general to accommodate 
to deliver what's in line with their goals. But I think sometimes there are definitely situations where you want the palliative care specialist to be there, to set up that time for the 30 minutes, to really talk it through. And they're much better in terms of training and just sort of skill set to provide that. And I think that is so crucial there. I'm not sure if I answered your question in full, but No, you definitely did. I I think it's more that end of life care or the care for extreme illness that it's really hard when we're not allowing visitors in the hospital because that's when you want to spend the most time with your family and the patients want the most visitors. And so it's, it's definitely difficult. But again, telehealth is one of the things that could potentially bridge it. We'll see. (laughs) We'll, we'll see. Only time will tell, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And so talking a little bit more about the strain that this has put on the health system in general, that this whole pandemic has put on the health system in general. You had one example um, a little bit earlier to my first question, but can you share some insights to how the New York City health system and, and your health and hospital systems have balanced the challenge of delivering care to both COVID patients and existing patients, but while retaining the quality? Yeah. So it can be challenging. And I think it was definitely challenging in the first surge where the vast majority of our patients were patients who were presenting with COVID. So someone with shortness of breath or even just a fever, we just presume COVID until otherwise, you know, proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I think when things slow down, it's sort of, how do we do this right? And then also in terms of just making sure that our, our patients who don't, who are not in Infected with coronavirus, how do we make sure that they're protected and, and there's no infection that goes on within the hospital setting also? And, and so these are very complex things. And then also just if you if you can think about this, that entire, because we, we've been at this for about a year now, our trainees, a lot of them, at least during the first surge, during those like however many months or all they were seeing was coronavirus. And so some of them were not being exposed in their first part of their intern year of quote the normal sort of things that we see in the hospital setting. And so that training is a little bit different and that provider is going to have different skill set. I think it's, it's definitely challenging. I think it's become much better. Our pathways of how to diagnose, how to treat, and how do we discharge with the appropriate follow-up for patients with COVID, I think have become much more certain and much more defined than it was before. And then I think in terms of our usual care, I think patients are obviously starting to come back to the hospitals and they have been. And I think that's important too. I don't know if there's great data in terms of who stayed home, you know, when they were ill and what happened to those patients and not just in terms of death, but just downstream issues along the line. And I think we're starting to see some of that too, because they were too scared to come in or they heard some things like don't come to the hospital unless you're really, really sick. And so we don't know what that is. I guess we'll start to see more of that too. That's something that I didn't really realize or I hadn't thought about. It's obvious, you know, that the interns haven't been exposed to the quote normal of what a normal, if you can call working at a hospital, (laughs) having a normal day. But if they were interning during the pandemic, so that's really interesting. It's funny. And so Dr. Cho, I can nerd out about healthcare with you all day. But I, I do want to be respectful of your time. And but before we close, I have one last question. We have talked at length about the shortcomings of the U.S. health system and all of the challenges that you face and the global pandemic. But to leave more on an upbeat note, what is either the change that you have been most proud of or the future transformation of which that you are the most optimistic for the U.S. healthcare system? 
Wow, that is a great question. I would say probably my best moments, I think, where I feel a lot of pride and just a good feeling about is probably the people who I've worked with the closest over the years. From figuring out, sitting across the table and just brainstorming about like, what the heck is high value care? Can we start a group? And then from that group, from two to grow to four to eight, and then so on and so forth. I mean, to, to what it is now, the people who sort of stuck by it and I've worked with, and I still have with me on my team, Mona Kraus, uh, Sigal Israelov have been here with me for, for years. And just that relationship in itself and how much they've grown and how much we've accomplished together, I think are probably one of the most proudest things and the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about, I guess in sort of my personal career and achievements. In terms of for the healthcare system in general, I am hopeful. It's made tremendous strides. If you think about my field uh, in terms of high value care, I think it's gone a long way from guidelines not having anything about not doing tests or treatments under certain circumstances to having such a wonderful initiative from the ABM Foundation, where they went to clinician societies and created these top five things, these choosing wise lists of things that you should not do because they're duplicative or unnecessary and harmful for our patient. And having those lists just go all over the place and then translating over to the ground, we have teams of high value care teams from one hospital to the next of hospitals and physicians and who have you trying to implement this in a real world setting and trying to get there and do that for our patients to just a handful of educators who are really having this discussion at the bedside with their residents and their students. And I think those are wonderful. And you didn't have those kind of things a decade or two before. And seeing that happen, I think is fantastic. And I think you named a few things, cost transparency from CMS, those things taking one step at a time. Seemingly, it is taking a while, but we've gone a long way and we're getting there. We're getting closer. And so maybe in the next 10 years, we can have those better discussions from me as a hospitalist on the inpatient side and being able to have that discussion with the patient about, hey, I'm going to send you down for a CT scan. I think you need it. I'm worried about this. This is how much it's going to cost. That's going to be thrilling. So I'm looking forward to that. Me too. I'm optimistic too, perpetually, but even about the healthcare system, as slow as it is, and as much as I harp on it, not moving at the correct pace, not technologically advanced enough, I am optimistic that in the next few years, we will get to even better place than we are now. So Dr. Cho, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for being on the Present Value Podcast. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth.